Hello and welcome to our podcast. We're calling it The Hunch because we believe you get the best ideas from people when they're relaxed, when they're with friends. And rather than giving you the corporate line, they give you their best guess, their gut feeling, their hunch. I'm Mark Schmid, and in each episode, I'll be talking to someone who can give us the lowdown on something that will transform their sector, our society, or even our everyday lives. In this episode, James Ashton tells me about his book, Nine Types of Leader, and explains that campaigner CEOs are on the rise. Now that increasing the profit and delivering the dividend is just the start, not the totality of the role. He also talks me through how a diplomatic approach to leadership is often underappreciated and why CEOs with the human touch inspire loyalty in a hybrid working world. Hello and welcome to The Hunch. I'm here today with journalist and author James Ashton, former city editor of the Sunday Times and more latterly at the Evening Standard and The Independent, and now a leading author and also a podcast host himself. So I'm expecting some tips as we go through here. He presents Leading with James Ashton, speaking to CEOs and business and other organisational leaders. And if you're listening to this, I recommend you give that a listen, but only once you've heard what James has to say to me today. So welcome, James. Mark, it's great to be talking to you today. Thank you for such a generous plug. I hope we can keep this up for the next half an hour or so. <laughs> oh, we, we're going to get onto the serious stuff now, James, because when when I first met you, actually, it was occasionally in you know, relatively ser- serious uh, environments. I'd, I'd be... Um, helping organizations with their reputations. And an interview with with you at the Sunday Times then was much sought and highly prized. Um, And I noticed, because we did a few of these, of course, with different publications, that you would always have a question or two that however prepared we were, you'd managed to find something that we didn't think you'd find, or you were able to bring something up that uh, um, made our lives more interesting sometimes slightly more difficult, but that's exactly as it should have been. So you were so well researched that I imagine that when you got into uh, writing books, uh, that helped greatly. Yeah. um, I mean, I think with the interview, with the, with the press interviews, I remember one I did very early on and um, I remember it was a joint interview, which was two journalists in the room with one CEO and the, and the other journalist went first. And, and, and his question was, so what do you do then? It was the sort of thing that the queen asks somebody and, and when they're meeting people in a line. And, uh, and I just thought that this is this, I've got to learn from this. This is never the way to prepare. And, and my view is, you know, the currency we both work in, Mark, is, is CEOs. You know, we want their time. We want their attention. We want to get them into print. Um, I don't want to waste their time uh, and neither do I want, to, you know, my time wasted. So I think the least I can do for them, uh, I don't think it's about trying to uh, trick them into saying something that they don't want to say. I want to, you know, dig into the subject and uh, and be prepared. And I think if it's something like, you know, what I'm known for, I would have done a lot of, would have done through, uh, you know, with some of your clients as well. Those big profile interviews, I think it's very, very easy to fill the space call it 1300 words and a, and a panel on the side by skimming over the surface and so on. But I think really digging into the um, their motivations, how they got to where they are today uh, and what pushed them early on and who pushed them 
really adds interest and value for the reader. I think that's why people read those things. And it's actually a lot of those motivations and things that shaped people's careers that I was trying to distill down in Nine Types of Leader. Yes. And obviously, you know, hundreds of CEO profiles um, put you in that perfect position to begin to define the nine types of leader um, as described in, in, in the book. I was really interested to think, James, or ask you, um, how soon did you begin to see the groupings, the types? Was it, was it apparent to you very early on in your interviewing career, almost as you were stepping through the door to do a profile, this is that type? Or, or how did that develop in your own mind? Uh, not, not at all early. I think when I started working for myself and I wanted to dig deeper into leadership because it's great to have, um, as a journalist, I think it's great to have a, a, a broad knowledge, as, as I hope I've gained on, you know, everything from, from you know, insurance to tech to, you know, interest rates and inflation. But I was always really interested in in the person. Uh, and so many CEOs say, oh, it's not about me, James, it's about the team. And I would always say, well, that's utter nonsense because it is about you. You're the figurehead. Uh, you get the big bucks, and and um, you know things things live or die depending on your strategy and how um, you you put that um, into action. So I think to to get to know the person and to dig into leadership was really interesting in terms of the groupings and the patterns. I suppose I first had the kernel of the idea. I, I did um, a run of interviews, and one of the and I talk about it at the start of the book. One of the great things about um you know going into an individual is is having a real close look at the cv where have they been what are the roles and 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 so on and you often spot what i call the talent factories they're in there so someone might have spent a few years at mckinsey um you know or they've been at one of the accountants and i came up time and time again um people who'd started out at procter and gamble and i was really fascinated by what was it about learning to sell washing powder, body spray, whatever, as a as a 20-something that meant fast forward 20 or 30 years, and these people were CEOs of a whole range of companies, um, you know, from uh, you know, telecoms to luxury goods and so on. And I suppose that's where the first, I mean, I liken this book and these nine types to almost a happy family, corporate happy families, if you like. Um, and so that became the kernel of, of what was the seller's chapter. So how did the the marketeers um, become the, the CEOs? And there's various reasons and, and there's very specific reasons about what P&G were doing in the UK um, in the 90s. And then I just went from there and I thought, well, you know, this is interesting um, because leadership's a big C. I mean, there's there's a there's a lot of experts and academics and people been um, you know writing and analysing you know good and bad leadership for years. And I, I was a little bit reluctant. I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to dive into this C, I've got to be able to add something um, that's unique to me. And it really was the fact that I've managed to spend so much time in these people's um, company. So that's why the book is quite personal, quite personable, hopefully quite colourful and, and readable. And so from sellers. I added on categories that obvious and that I knew, um, like uh, founders, uh, because people have been founding companies forever. And then, um, you know, alphas is always seen as that uh, leadership type. People have, you know, uh, views and obviously people are a bit down on alphas at the moment. And then I started to add some, which I, I, I like to think of mine. So um, the, the humans, um, the lovers, the diplomats, the fixers. And um, 
And I suppose I, I, I got to nine and I felt like I'd covered the waterfront and I tested it against all the CEOs that I'd interviewed o- over the years. And then I, um, I went about freshening up those categories and internationalizing and, and, and finding more examples of more diverse leaders who, who, who sat in each of those fields. And, and, uh, and, you know, before you know it, there's a book. And uh, yeah, I, I was struck actually by the, uh, uh, the, the sellers and, and the, the kind of P&G production line. I, I think you had see Gavin Patterson, Dave Lewis in there. Do you think that kind of pathway with all the changes we're seeing in society will endure and in, in you know, a decade or so's time, we'll be talking about CEOs who have again come through that route or are things changing? Well, I think there was something unique about P&G in those years and it goes to, uh, you know, Tim Davey at the, um, at the BBC and there's, there's, there's so many um, names. I mean, Paul Geddes who went on to run, you know, Direct Line and, uh, and others. I think there was something specific that that PNG was doing in the way that it hired people. It, it didn't advertise. It didn't. It wasn't looking for marketeers. It was looking for um, people who who'd had entrepreneurial experience at at a, a set number of uh, of the Russell Group universities and so on. And and that the way that it handed responsibility to them very very soon. I mean, th- there was the UK was quite independent, whereas PNG now is um, is is much less. Federated. I think Cincinnati will have a lot more power over what is, it happens in the UK. But I think in terms of those people getting to the top, I mean, across a few categories that I um, that I write about, I think the ability to to communicate is absolutely at the fore. And it it was uh, before COVID, and it certainly was emphasised during COVID. So I think the strength of the 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 marketers, the sellers, as I describe them, is that um, they um, they know the product, they know the market that it's in, and they're very, very good at, at communicating that. I think people say that marketers, um, you know, good storytellers, and I think that's um, essential uh, as the CEO. There are very few CEOs who can who can lock themselves away and not communicate internally or externally. Now, mm. I was also struck by the uh, the, the type you've identified uh, as campaigners because they. Um, have uh, seemed to to come to the fore, and of course, the ESG agenda is now well uh, established. Um, do you feel that campaigners are going to become more prevalent, and their skills that need to be more widely adopted? Well, I think we know that that just increasing the profit and just delivering the dividend um, is not enough anymore, and so. Um, I think the balance is that um, as a CEO, you, you need to be able to define what the purpose is alongside the profit. And that's been talked about for, for, for quite a while. But I think there's something about um, the right purpose and, um, and how those things um, fit together. So in the book, I um, have quite a section uh, where I interviewed RJ Banger, who up until recently was running MasterCard. And I think the there's something about the credibility, the authenticity of, of a campaign um, that sits alongside the, the business purpose. And MasterCard did something quite clever. Um, they work very closely on increasing financial inclusion, which is getting 
many, many of the people who, who are not in the global money system into the global money system, um, you know, for, for lots of reasons. So in some of the developing markets, it means, um, you know, a farmer can um, sell their goods via smartphone without having to haul everything to market uh, and so on. Now, clearly there's self-interest there because MasterCard wants everyone transacting, you know, via smartphone. Um, but the half a billion or so extra people that they brought into the money system through through their campaign, um, not going to deliver any profit for, for many, many years. So I think it's it's absolutely imperative that, um, you know, companies and CEOs, we know from the pandemic, um, they uh, their sort of social contract, the fact that businesses don't operate in isolation, um, it, the social contract has been reinforced. They have to be good citizens and, and good people in their community. But I think in terms of what the campaign is, not every CEO can come out and say, we're going to save the whales. I think it's being clever and thinking, um, how do I get my workforce behind um, some sort of purpose that sits right behind, right alongside, you know, driving profit for shareholders? Fixers are perhaps, to my mind anyway, the, the, the ones that you can probably most imagine, the type you can most imagine uh, a chairman, chairperson saying, we need one of those now. We need a, a Red Adair to come on in, put out the fire, uh, turn us around. Um, but I was interested when I was reading uh, your examples of the fixes that you've uh, interviewed and, and researched about what you thought their levels of self-awareness are. Do you think that they typically understand that that's what they're best at? And that they will have a relatively defined and sometimes quite short term role to play. Well, I think they're pretty I think they're they're pretty self-aware and I think they've got quite a thick skin. I think with a lot of leaders, you know, if if um it, it's it's interesting, you know, I interviewed a lot of people afresh for the book and I said, Oh, well, you know, I I think I think you're one of these, uh, you know, by the way. And some people said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, you know. I, I think the, the, the general point is that um, uh, all leaders need to carry on learning through their careers. And I think they do learn and do adapt. I think their, their style is defined by sometimes by birth, if you're a scion, if you're lucky enough to, to inherit the business from, from, from your dad. And I do write that nepotism is not all bad. Um, it's defined by the training, like the P&G um, guys, and sometimes it's defined by the by the situation, as in fixers. I'm not clear that leaders um, change as much as they say they do over the years, and I think the fixers are a great example. You get into one thing that you're good at, and you use the Red Adair example. Obviously, we're talking to an older listenership when we mention when we mention Red Adair. Mark, anyone that's young can 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 Google him. But this absolutely, the fixer is the CEO that, that the shareholders call or the, the chairman calls. They, they, they pick up the uh, the plastic cover and, and ring on the red telephone on their desk and say, help, my business is about to go under. So I think they, um, I think they generally are self-aware that it's a, um, it's, it's a three-year job and um, the first 100 days are um, essential. And, uh, you know, I'm probably going to... Um, slaughter some sacred cows and be very unpopular. So I think, I think they absolutely, you know, revel in, in, in that toolkit. And there are examples from, from private equity. Um, so someone like, you know, Tim Parker, who's uh, known as the Prince of Darkness has um, um, uh, saved in inverted commas, or other people might say, say otherwise, but 
the, the companies are all there and, and and flourishing now. Everyone from the AA to to Kenwood, um, to to Clark Shoes, and then the other one in there that I um, focus on Moya Green at, at the Royal Mail, and um, I mean that really was a business going down the tubes until until she came in. I think um, 10, 11 years ago. Yeah, uh, that that was a, a story I very much enjoyed uh, reading. You know, it was almost hour by hour, day by day, wasn't it? As you were describing the actions uh, she needed to take. Well, I think that I think it was it was interesting, and um, I mean, I think one thing that fixers are very good at is they measure their um, they really weigh up the um, the opportunities. I think sometimes when CEOs don't match. Um, it's because um, the the board who were appointing didn't quite know what type of leader they wanted, and and the person accepted the role without without doing their homework. I think fixers are very good at um, at defining, you know, what what we what what can be done. Um, you know, how likely is success, and and actually, um, you know, calculating that ahead of time. And uh, so, yeah, I think she did do that um, because she wouldn't, Moya wouldn't have taken that job unless the government of the day was willing to uh, back uh, privatisation. I think that I think the chairman that hired her was uh, was reading from the Queen's speech down the phone while she was um, sat at Harvard uh, waiting for her daughter's graduation. And it's at that point she she accepted the job. But even when she got in, I don't think she realised the finances were were quite as bad as all that. In the book, very helpfully, at the end of each chapter dealing with each type of leader, you you make a note of their strengths and weaknesses. And I, I wondered, um, which leadership type do you think has the qualities that are most underappreciated? And second part of that question, which has the most qualities which are overestimated in terms of their value to an organisation? Well, I think the diplomat is is quite um, underappreciated. So diplomats are, and I, I see them in a couple of areas. I mean, they're, they're quite often the leader that's chosen to, they're kind of first among uh, equals. They're very good at listening. They're very good at uh, moderating. They're quite often the leader that's selected, um, might be, even be voted on. You know, we do see democracy alive in some of the accounting firms, in some of the um, legal firms, and other examples I um, use, uh, Arup is in there, the engineer. So I think, you know, if you're running something like a PwC or a Deloitte, you're not really running one advisory firm. You're running maybe a thousand different versions of an advisory firm, depending on um, what each of the equity partners um, thinks that firm should be and should be focusing on. So I think really, um, you know, being able to synthesize so many different opinions and views and be the person to put your head above um, the, the parapet and and keep the business rolling forward is um, is quite a skill. And what else you want me to say? Who's um, who's uh, overrated? Yes, oh, I was thinking um, more of a type than an individual, but it's up to you. No, I, 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 <laughs> uh, um, it's difficult in terms of overrated. I, I think they've all got their place. Mm. Um, you know, as I say, it's just about making sure they're they're matched. To, um, to, to the right opportunity. I mean, alphas are the one that people will, oh, of course, I know alpha leaders and aren't they terrible? And, and I think the point I make in the book is um, 
absolutely. You know, alphas are the the fist banging on the table people, typically old white males. It's my way or the highway. And you know, examples of people like you know Philip Green at, at Topshop. I mean, the, the the received wisdom is is we should not see his um, you know his type again. Um, I think th- though you turn to Silicon Valley. And you look at people like you know Elon Musk. I mean, what type of leader is Elon Musk apart from being an alpha? Well, he's also a, actually he didn't found Tesla. He's founded other things, but he's absolutely an alpha. And I think it's interesting those alphas who um, like Lord Hansen or others who assembled those conglomerates that had a bit of this and a bit of that just because the boss said it worked, like an Arnold Weinstock. If you go back in far enough in in history, I mean they're out. You know, shareholders rule. They want focus. They want discipline. Um, you know, and they want they want good returns. But actually, if um, if if you're someone like like a Musk, and you can uh, you can actually drive those superior returns for, for investors on on Wall Street, um, you can pretty much do what you like. Um, uh, you know, as an alpha, and you know he runs his business in a very particular sort of way. Um, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, how many other categories of leader would um, you know reportedly have their their staff sleeping in sleeping bags on the floor of their Shanghai factory just to keep up with demand at the moment? <laughs> yes, yes, that that uh, would be a test for a number of uh, HR departments. Yeah, um, we've actually found that we're doing uh, quite a lot of work at the moment with chief people officers, HR and talent teams um, who are really clear that they just haven't got the raw materials, the talent coming through that they used to, uh, particularly in, in technology areas. Uh, the competition in the market is absolutely red hot. So we're doing quite a lot of work on employer brand, you know, how we help uh, these businesses appeal to um, often the young talent they need in, in software development, for example, to come on in. And obviously some businesses uh, like Google have huge international scale, deep pockets. Um, and so these companies have to be a little bit more imaginative in how they attract people. And of course, um, the quite rightly, a lot of questions are now asked around um, diversity and inclusion uh, and the policies that a business might have. And I noticed that um, uh, the type that I think probably is most closely aligned to this in terms of viewing people as the greatest asset of the business you're calling that type of leader humans um is that something that you feel is uh, an emerging trend and more and more ceos uh, are actually acutely aware that um people management hr uh, is now front and center in the business that they're building yeah, I think it. Look, I mean, the human, the human uh, chapter, which is which is the 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 last one in the book. I think if any CEOs reading this want to be either a human leader or possibly a campaigner leader, and and they would shy away from uh, certainly alphas. And I have a category category called lovers, which is about leaders who are really passionate about what they do. But I I think for um, probably for HR reasons, no CEO wants to be known as a lover inside their business. <laughs> but in terms of human, I think you're. I think absolutely. Right, and I think we've gone through this stage where um, uh, you know what what was what was front and center, what was the most important asset in a, in a company. I think there was a time when it was cash, certainly through the financial crisis. I think there's been a time um, that the that the brand, um, you know, the intangibles have been have been the key thing. And I think we're at the stage now where it is 
the talent, as you say, um, that, you know, we, we hear that millennials, um, they want to work for companies for various reasons, but not just for the money. And I, I don't, I always hear that and I don't agree with it. I think every millennial I've ever met still wants good salary, but they want good other stuff as well. Mm. Mm. So I think the human leader really came into their own, um, you know, during the pandemic and I define humans, um, you know, they've got a, they've got a big dose of emotional intelligence. I think they, they admit mistakes, um, they're listening. And I think they're the ones that, that took their duty of care very seriously during the pandemic. They didn't fret about, well, am I going to get my, you know, eight hours of, um, uh, you know, of, of work out of, um, you know, employee X as he's, uh, you know, s- sat working in his spare room in his, in his, in his rabbit hutch in, in, in East London. And actually th- they switched that around and thought, well, you know, what, what do you need from me so that you can get through this, this very difficult time? So I think um, they're, they're very good at um, connecting. Some CEOs thought that the Zoom conversations, the, the town halls on Zoom were actually quite limiting and they struggled to express themselves. But I think the ones, the human leaders managed to look through the screens rather than see them as a block. And I think they're the ones that, that listen, act on what they're hearing, and they're very good, particularly at loyalty. I mean, when the whole company is dispersed because of COVID, I mean, loyalty is, is that invisible bond that's tying people together wherever they are in the world. And as we increasingly work hybrid, I think that's um, that's a big thing um, as well. And actually, I've got one other point on that because I wrote a little more on it um, recently. One of the trends I saw, and I think it talks to being a human, a human leader, um, I always find it very interesting as to where the next CEO comes from. And for a long time, it's been... Um, you know the finance director who, who you know get rid of the numbers and, and get into the, the the broad leadership role, or possibly somebody who's run the the, the big division or whatever. And the a trend I spotted recently is um, there are instances now where the HRD or the CHRO, as they like to be called, um, has stepped up from um, from their role looking after the people agenda to becoming CEO. So two recent examples. Lena Nair went across from Unilever at the start of this year uh, to run Chanel. And stepping up at Greg's, um, uh, Roisin Curry, who was people director, spent a long time at Asda, and she'd had a broader role at Greg's before getting the CEO role, but she's CEO as of um, as of around now. And um, I just think that wouldn't have happened uh, a few years ago. And I think it talks to what you said about that human agenda, um, it's about the the importance of talent, but I think it's also um, that the forward-looking businesses are seeing HR not just as a as a cost center, but actually as a as a business driver. Uh, and so, yeah. Anyway, and I think that talks to this the the human leadership that we're seeing now, and we should see more of. And just just using that term, human human leadership, makes me think that um, although we're talking about business leadership. Uh, it doesn't operate in a vacuum, and there's some very visible leaders. If you're thinking uh, in the world of sport, someone like uh, Jurgen Klopp, for example, would communicate in a very different way to uh, how his predecessors might have done. I'd, I'd say perhaps in a very, very human way. Uh, and then when you look at politics, um, we could spend another hour or two talking about that. But the way that pol- politicians communicate and, re- and, and relate is very different again to their uh, predecessors. 
So I'm wondering whether you think that as uh, leadership uh, in its widest sense evolves, that also fuses into how business leaders behave, act and communicate. Well, I think they have to. I mean, I think politics is 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 a different um, case entirely. And I think this, um, you know, countries continue to to flirt with whether you call it uh, the populist leader or the or the nationalist leader. And I think that is a, um, I think that must be a symptom of of you know the mainstream leaders are are not offering enough, are not um, you know not connecting. And it's very interesting what happens in. Um, in, in the UK, in the May local elections, and um, uh, and so on. Uh, you know, I do think the 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 the, the Tory leadership would be um, would be struggling if there was a, a stronger alternative. Um, so, I, but I don't think we have that sense of connection from political leadership that we have seen from from some of the good um, business leaders over the last. Um, couple of years, I think um, charity absolutely. But it, uh, I mean, it's it's impossible. It must be impossible um, not to connect if you're if you're stood on the touchline. Um, you know, when particularly when you're winning everything. Mm-hmm. Um, in in the case in the case of Klopp, the one I've been particularly fascinated by is, and I interviewed a lot of charity leaders on the podcast and put some in the book. Is what charity and business learn to each other, uh, learn from each other, because it's very much oil and water. And, and this idea that you know we're not a charity um, used to be uh, used to be sort of a you know a, a rebuke, if you like. And I think particularly around you know, my type of, of campaigners, um, they I think the campaigners have an awful lot to learn from um, charity bosses about how they um, bring people around, you know, behind a cause. And you know, engender that loyalty and make things happen. Sometimes on on quite um, small budgets, we don't get much interplay between the corporate and the charitable world. But it's interesting as businesses do more that they're, they're taking on more of the activity that public sector used to do. I think there's there's quite a lot of overlap, and they should learn from each other. I think it's quite interesting that someone like Doug Gurr left Amazon um, to run the um, Natural History Museum. Which is perhaps not. I mean, obviously, he he he's probably not in it for the money, um, but it, it's it's a move you wouldn't have seen a while ago. You know, if you go, went back ten years, that sort of boss might have become a trustee, but to actually c- commit to it on a, on a full term full time basis, I think is quite an interesting trend as as you sort of mix around where leaders emerge from. And James, we have to ask you for your hunch on leadership. Yeah, I think, well, I think the, my hunch is, uh, we've talked about some of it, is that um, the companies and organizations that will thrive uh, in the coming years are those that adopt um, what I call the human leadership model. Um, it's those leaders that are um, you know, really engaged with their workforce. Um, I think they know how to engender loyalty. Um, they know how to, um, to listen and act on what they hear, and I think also that they're, they're good at um, they're good at justifying their own existence. I call that less is more because that gets me some alliteration. But I think um, they're the ones um, they will prosper. Their workforces will prosper, and if everything's working properly, then um, the shareholders and other stakeholders should prosper too. 
really positive note to end on, James. Thank you. Um, we've only really scratched the surface of the nine types of leader, but I've really enjoyed hearing some more about how you arrived at those uh, characteristics. But it really is a cracking read. So uh, make sure if you're listening, you look out for the nine types of leader published by Kogan Page. And once you've exhausted all of the, the back issue episodes of The Hunch, uh, you are entirely permitted to look up and listen to Leading with James Ashton. James, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Mark. Enjoyed that. Thank you for listening. Follow me, Mark Schmid, or our company, Simmons & Schmid, on LinkedIn or Twitter for news of our next episode.